Well, this morning we are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and uh, we're going to be, we're in the last section of 2 Thessalonians, and uh, this is the last opportunity we have to look at the book together. We've been looking at it for the, the past group of weeks, for the past couple months, and today we're going to be talking about the, the fact that, that we need to stay productive even when the couch keeps calling our name. Now, what do I mean by that? What does it mean to stay productive even, and, and you've experienced this, right? Because my couch from time to time calls my name. And I look at it and I think, is this a good time to respond to this call? Or do I ignore this call right now? And so when we look at this portion of Scripture together, we're going to see some specific challenges, some specific words of admonition that the Apostle Paul gives to the church at Thessalonica, and I hope it will encourage our hearts as well. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting with verse 6, this is what it tells us. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we commend and encourage, or command, excuse me, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the teaching of your word, and thank you for the fact that over the past group of weeks, we've had the privilege to go through the book of Second Thessalonians together, looking at the different things that you communicated to the church through the Apostle Paul, things that applied in the original context that they were first spoken, but things that apply to us as well. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd teach us, that you'd instruct us as we look at this last and final section of the book of Second Thessalonians. We pray that we would understand this idea of, of truly what it means to be productive for your glory, because we know that there are a lot of voices out there calling us in a different direction. And obviously, that was something that the people of Thessalonica were wrestling with, but we wrestle with it as well. So we pray that you'd speak to us now, and we thank you for this privilege to be able to start off our week looking at your word together. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple of years ago, I was actually having a conversation with a friend. He's, uh, well, he's 
plenty older than me, a little bit older than me. Actually, at the time, had recently retired from his vocation. And he's somebody who's always been a hard worker. He's somebody who has always actually enjoyed having a lot of things going on at once. One of the things I've noticed about him through the years is that it seemed like he always had a lot of things going on at once. But in observing him from a distance, I started noticing something different. I actually started noticing some unhealthy habits beginning to develop in his life. And so we're good enough friends that I was able to speak honestly with him about some of these things. And so when the opportunity came up, we talked about it a little bit. And it first came to my attention when he told me about something that had occurred when his grandchildren had come to visit. They were all in his house. They were all running around. They were all messing with everything and moving everything. And apparently one of his, his uh, grandchildren had taken his television remote and used it and then put it who knows where. <laughs> Now, all right, I think we could all admit that there would be some catastrophic feelings that any of us might feel in a moment like that, but when they left and it dawned on him that he could not find that remote, and he and I happened to be talking right around that time, I noticed he was livid, not just perturbed, not just irritated, not just feeling a little bit impatient. He was livid, and I asked him, why is this bothering you so much? This is an abnormal amount of emotion over a lost remote. And he said this to me. He said, what else do I have? That's what he said. What else do I have? At this point, I just want to watch TV and I can't even do that. It's this comment. What else do I have? And it's stuck in my mind. And it actually helped me realize, at least in that moment, I, I realized, all right, my friend's depressed. Like he's legitimately feeling depressed. And this, tr- this depression that he was feeling was, tra- was transforming this healthy, productive man into a much unhealthier version of himself. Now, thankfully, he came out of that and uh, is on the other side of that, well on the other side of that, which is beautiful to see. But I was thinking about that this week and looking at this particular portion of Scripture, because when you look at the Lord's calling on your life, one of the things that you'll notice is that the Lord's called us as believers to be productive in multiple ways. So we're to be productive with the time that He's blessed us with. We're called to be productive with the the talents or the abilities that the Lord has given us. These are things that the Lord gives to us as a gift that we would use them in a way that glorifies Him. And this was something that Paul, as he was writing this letter down and writing out this last section of this brief letter to the church at Thessalonica, he wanted them to understand that concept as well. But apparently some in their context were really struggling to grasp that. They were really wrestling with, and maybe it's not even fair to say that some of them were wrestling because I don't think that some of them were thinking about it at all, but they weren't understanding what it means to remain productive with the time and with the resources and with the talents and the abilities that the Lord's given to us in every season of life. So how can we, let's, let's talk about this in a personal way as we look at the historical things that are referenced here, but I want us to be asking a question, how can we be productive when the couch keeps calling our name? I mean, it will call your name or the recliner or wherever your favorite seat is, right? It's going to call your name or when the TV is calling your name. How can we be productive when we're experiencing these things? How can we productive, or how can we be productive for the Lord's glory instead of using our, our life to basically take a prolonged nap? And I think that this scripture addresses that in a very clear and very helpful way, regardless of where we are on that journey. Look at what Paul tells us 
in verses 6 through 8. I'll reread those in just a second. But one of the things that we're encouraged to understand as a principle, as we're thinking about what does it mean to be productive for the Lord's glory, well, one of the principles that Paul brings up in this portion of Scripture that should get deep into our minds and deep into our hearts is that we're called to be a blessing, not a burden. Now, what does Scripture mean when it kind of gives us this thought of being a blessing, not a burden? Look again at verses 6 through 8. Let me reread those verses. Paul says this, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. So you probably noticed this when we were going through our study of the book of 1 Thessalonians, but in his first letter to the church at Thessalonica, which Paul wrote just several months prior to this one, these letters are on the timetable very close together. These are things that he addressed them twice in close proximity. But in that first letter that he wrote to the church at Thessalonica, Paul warned them not to be lazy. It was one of the warnings he gave them in the last chapter of that letter. And basically, if there were any idle brothers among them, the church, under Paul's instruction, was to challenge those brothers to repent of their laziness and get back to work. And that's one of the things that you'll see, at the and we did see as we studied 1 Thessalonians together, you see that right in the last chapter. But for whatever reason, here we are in his next letter to the church, and we're in the last chapter of this one, and for whatever reason, it appears that there were still some people in that church that had not taken Paul's words to heart. So Paul elaborates on that a little bit further. He goes into a little bit more detail here. And in this passage, Paul challenged the church as a whole He says, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he challenges them to stop socializing and spending their time with believers who choose to walk in idleness. He encourages them, you know, don't socialize with them. Don't be spending all your time with them. If they're going to walk in idleness, you need to take a little bit of a break from that relationship. And there was a twofold reason for doing so. First of all, it would be a form of social discipline for the lazy person. The lazy person would realize, hey, I think uh, people are starting to not really carve out a whole lot of time for me like they used to. So it'd be a form of social discipline, social reprimand for the lazy person. But the other thing it would do, the secondary effect, is that it would help prevent the bad habits of the lazy people in the church at Thessalonica from rubbing off on those who had not developed those habits. And so Paul was trying to kind of have like a twofold benefit for the church, for the person that was the offending party, but also for those who still love their brothers and sisters in Christ. But Paul didn't want them to adopt some of those bad habits as their own. And we all recognize that the people that we live with in our day-to-day life have an influence on us, do they not? I mean, the people I know, the people I interact with most by choice... Those people have an influence on me. The people you spend the most time with have an influence on you. Paul understood that concept, and he says, listen, I don't, I don't, if they're going to be so brazenly lazy, I don't want you spending all your time hanging out with them. You need to temporarily take a break from that relationship. And as Paul shared this challenge, as he stated these things, he did so as somebody with great credibility. Because think about the example that the Apostle Paul set for this church. And he reminds them of that in this passage. He reminds them of the example that he had set for them while he was with them. During his visit, Paul did not burden them financially. 
I find that very admirable. He did not burden them financially. Scripture reveals to us that Paul worked at his trade. Well, what was his trade? Paul was involved in tent making. And he would often fellowship with other tent makers as he would go area to area. And uh, it, it, I believe that that contributed to the relationship that he had with Priscilla and Aquila. They understood the same trade. And so Paul worked hard at making tents so that he would not have to be dependent on the people of Thessalonica to support him. And he even states here that he didn't eat the food of others without compensating them for it. I think he was actually going through the extra effort to make sure that nobody could accuse him of coming to that community and doing what he was doing just to get money from this group of people. He wanted to be a blessing, not a burden to this church, and he also wanted to make sure that under no circumstance could the gospel come into disrepute among them based on actions that he had taken. So he worked hard. Years ago, I had a conversation with a woman who was failing in health. Her health was failing her. It was through no fault of her own. There was absolutely nothing she could do about it. She had worked hard all her life. That was her reputation, hard worker. If you, if you talk to anybody that knew her, they would say, you know, this was somebody who was a very hard worker, very dedicated to serving other people. But now in her weakened state, she was relying on others for all sorts of personal care. And it never set well with her. And this is what she said to me. And I tried to encourage her heart when she said this, but this was her comment because I was not sitting well with her. And keep in mind, this is somebody that for years had taken care of others in this same state, but now she was in a state where she needed care from others. And she said, I feel like I'm being a burden to everyone. That was what got into her head. She said, I feel like I'm being a burden to everyone. Now, she wasn't a burden to others, but that's how she felt because it was very hard for her to flip the switch that sometimes you're providing care, but sometimes you need care. And we're all in that spot. Different seasons of life bring that out in us. Sometimes we need care, and sometimes we provide care. But when you look at the church at Thessalonica, there were people who did not seem troubled in conscience to be burdening their, their, their church family with their needs even though they were still in a spot where they could have met their own needs through hard work and through personal effort. So they weren't yet at a spot where they needed care. What they were doing was they were manipulating those who were compassionate and willing to provide it before they needed it, when they didn't need it. And Paul was like, uh-uh. <laughs> I get a big kick out of when Paul decides to become lovingly forceful because you can tell that it comes from a spot of love. It's not that he doesn't care about them. It's because he does care about them that he thinks, you know what, maybe the rest of the world will lie to you. Maybe the rest of the world will tell you what you want to hear. But I'm going to be the person who loves you enough to tell you what you need to hear. And it might sting at first, but hopefully it'll click later on. And so he was encouraging them, be a blessing not a burden. And then he develops this thought a little bit further. And he, he, he begins to show them the importance of showing integrity in their labor. Look at the verses following what we just read, verses 9 through 12. He says it this way. He says, it was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. How about this statement? He says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. 
Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So let's pause there for just a second. When you look at what Paul's stating here, he elaborates further on the importance of us showing integrity in our labor. And he reminded this church that even though in his state, he could have said, yeah, okay, he had the right to be compensated for the spiritual care that he provided for them. It wouldn't have been wrong for him to be paid for the spiritual care that he was providing for them. But he willingly went without that compensation because he wanted to give them an example to imitate. He wanted to give them a picture that would point their hearts to the sacrificial service that we have been the beneficiaries of, that Jesus Christ has supplied for us. I mean, think about what Jesus came to this earth to do. Jesus did not come to this earth to get anything from you or from me, because there's nothing that you or I can offer him that he couldn't just have anyway. There's nothing that you or I could offer him that wouldn't be tainted in some way with our own sinfulness. There is nothing he needed from me. There's nothing he needed from you. So when Jesus Christ came to this earth, what did he do? He sacrificially served us. He sacrificially served you and he sacrificially served me. And he sacrificially served the people of this era that the Apostle Paul was living in the midst of. And so Paul was trying to copy the example of Christ. And he wanted to give the Thessalonians a visible example to imitate. As he copied Christ, he wanted the Thessalonians to be copying him. He wanted to give them a picture that could point their hearts to the sacrificial service that Jesus Christ had shown. And Paul wanted to make certain, and I already mentioned this already, but Paul wanted to make certain that this, the, the people of that city could never falsely accuse him of doing what he was doing because he was motivated by some form of dishonest gain. He wanted to make sure there was no opportunity to accuse him in that regard. But again, since there were those within the church that seemed to be ignoring the example of Christ's service, and they were also ignoring the direct teaching of the Apostle Paul, Paul gives them a very forceful form of instruction that would be very hard to misunderstand. And I love what he says. He says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Is that not a beautiful statement? Anyone here a small business owner? Is that not a beautiful statement? You know, someone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul says this very directly. Now, I imagine to some people when they would hear that, they would say, that is so harsh. Why was the Apostle Paul such a harsh man? Why was he, why was he saying this? By the way, you know, we often talk about like the Puritan work ethic, the, the Protestant work ethic. This was something that, you know, the Puritans and, and, uh, you know, some of the, the people that, that settled in, in New England, you know, uh, hundreds of years ago. This was one of the things that motivated them as they were trying to set up their areas, set up those colonies. They were like, all right, if someone's not going to work, they're not eating. When you look at some of the background, some of the historical background on how they organized there, because they tried to do it a different way when they first arrived, and then they realized people were needlessly starving because you had some people overproducing and other people doing just what the church at Thessalonica was doing. And so on year two, they were like, here's the deal. If you don't work, you don't eat. Here's your plot of land. Here's your plot of land. Here's your plot of land. Farm it. Make something. Sell it to others, trade with others, but if you don't work, you're not eating, and don't complain. And it's like, oh, uh, well, that is so harsh. It's like, really, do you want to starve like last year? Or do you want to eat food? Let's do it right. And so Paul, he's not trying to be harsh. I know it seems harsh. He's not trying to be harsh. He's trying to say, 
This is the reality, brothers. If you don't work, you don't eat. And I think it makes perfect sense. And what he's saying is, listen, guys, instead of sitting around gossiping and sitting around complaining and sitting around taking advantage of the hard work of others, like some of these brothers and sisters were doing, he's saying, here's what you need. You need a kick in the pants. If you don't work, you don't eat. And he's saying this is the primary church authority for this church that he's planted. And they're like, all right, you know, churches all make doctrinal statements and core values and stuff like that. Do you suppose the elders in Thessalonica were like, I guess we have to add this to the list. If you don't work, you don't eat. Should the church, should our church add that to like our core values? You know, here's our doctrines, here's our beliefs, here's our practices. Also, if you don't work, you don't eat. And that goes for the hospitality table in the entryway as well. All right. You know, no matter what. These brothers needed a kick in the pants, and Paul wasn't afraid to give it to them, not because he didn't love them, but because he did love them. And he thought, you know what? I know it'll do the trick. Missing a few meals, that tends to motivate some people. Let's let them miss a few meals. And again, keep in mind that Paul was addressing a group of people who had both the ability to work and the opportunity to work. They had both of those things, because sometimes you could look throughout the course of your life and say, all right, in that moment, I didn't have the ability to work. He's not talking about that. Or in another moment, you could say, I didn't have the opportunity to work. I had to do this other task. He's not talking about that. He's talking about people that had both the ability and the opportunity. They had the ability and the opportunity, but they were choosing not to work because they wanted to manipulate those who were willing to show them compassionate care. So again, this wasn't a statement regarding those who needed compassion. It wasn't a statement regarding those who needed benevolence. This was a word of correction to those who were taking advantage of others so that they could sit around all day gossiping. And he's like, "Uh uh-uh, that's not healthy for anyone spiritually, spiritually, and it's not healthy for the church as a whole. Now, here's a funny thing that I didn't think a whole lot about before becoming a pastor, but I have to tell you, at times as a pastor, I I feel like I have to be a detective. And what do I mean by that? Well, I'm often given the task to try and determine how to share benevolent uh, care with those who have need, right? There's often, I mean, people will call the church, uh, people will contact the church, people will show up, they'll try and figure out, many of you know that for several months in the midst of this pandemic, when it got fired up, our church was the primary source of food for many people here in the community. There are plenty of people that did not have the resources to buy groceries. And so for several months, we set up those sharing tables on the front porch of the church. And uh, in that case, we weren't trying to be detectives by any means. We just put it out there and let people come. And many of you kept filling those up and filling those up. And other people in the community that we don't even know personally kept filling those up. And we shared as much as we could. And we thought, listen, there's no time to be detectives right now. There are needs. And we want to meet as many of these needs as we can. And yes, some people who don't need those things will come and take it. But there'll also be some people who desperately need those things who will come and take it. And so we're like, all right, it's on everyone's conscience Come and take what you need, and if you know someone, the other thing we put out, if you know somebody who can't get out, come and get it for them and take it. So we had some people that said, I don't have a need for myself, but my neighbor is a shut-in and can't get out of her house. Can I take some for them? We're like, take everything you need. And And on the last day when we finally decided, okay, use of those tables had started to diminish as things started to open up again, we're like, okay, what we have left, we gathered it all up and we gave it to a woman who was in a spot where she couldn't provide these needs for herself. We just loaded her up with everything that was left. Now, that's something that a church is happy to do. 
I mean, weren't we happy to do that together? It made me happy every day to see our church family participating in that and to see people who don't even share our faith in the community joining us and some people even stopping at the store down the road. And at the store down the road, I happen to know that one particular cashier uh, who was working at the grocery store down the street would tell people when they were looking for, it happened to be my daughter, would tell people when they were looking to, to donate food, She's like, oh, did you happen to know that Core Creek Church down the street uh, has a sharing table? And they're like, oh, well, wonderful. And so they put some stuff on the sharing table. It's good to have an insider, you know? So we're like, all right, children, pandemic, infiltrate the grocery stores and fill up the sharing table. But regardless, sometimes I feel like I have to be a detective trying to figure out who's lying and who has a real need. And sometimes it's very obvious that there's a genuine need. And other times it becomes clear that there are people who are just persisting in their laziness, and all they want to do is take advantage of compassionate people. And so, you know, I'll try and be not super specific, but if you figure this out, it's not really a big deal. Um, uh, Let's see. Oh, last fall. Uh, Seth, I didn't ask your permission to use this story, so forgive me in advance. Uh, Seth was preaching at one of our sister churches, and right before he started preaching, somebody came in asking for gas money with a sob story about how their car broke down and they didn't have gas money. And the people in the church looked at Seth and they were like, Seth, uh, what do we do? And Seth's like, here's the deal. I'm your guest speaker. <laughs> like, why are you asking me to figure this out for you? So he figures it out for them. Well, then a couple weeks later, they show up here. And Seth told me afterward, he's like, just so you know, that's the same story that they gave at the church I was guest speaking at. And I was like, noted. And guess what? They forget that they've made the rounds because they recently showed up here again. Same stuff. I'm like, you have got to come up with a new story. You've got to come up with a new story that can't keep happening to you over and over again. You've got to stop making that up. All right. And uh, I have to admit that my attitude was more in line with what Paul conveyed in this passage the second time I interacted with them and felt lied to and deceived than the first time when I was still playing detective. There's no more playing detective. It's like, here's the deal. Work, get paid, buy things. That's the pattern. Don't ask other people who are working and getting paid to buy things for you when you have the ability and opportunity to do it for yourself. There will be a day when you don't have that opportunity, then it's fine. But prior to that day, stop lying and stop trying to take advantage of people just because you know they're going to be kind and they're going to be compassionate. And so I have to confront that form of deceit regularly. In fact, one time someone called the church here and she had a sob story, and I said, let me just stop you right there. Other pastors in the area had warned me about this, and, uh, and I said, I, I just have to ask you a question. I want you to be honest with me. Do you have a phone book in front of you, and are you just paging through the phone book, calling all the churches one at a time in the phone book? Long pause. Yes. I was like, okay, I'm going to ask you to stop doing that. You don't need to do that. You need to stop doing it. Also, pastors talk to each other and we know that you're doing it. And I'm going to tell others that you're doing it too. Stop doing it. Okay. All right, have a good day. And Paul was basically, in their context, telling them, stop doing that to each other. So on the reverse, now that I got that out of my system, all right, that's been pent up for a while. Thank you for your patience. (laughs) On the reverse... 
what does it look like from a positive standpoint for us to show integrity in the labor that the Lord has given to us? What does it look like? Because all of us have a task. It, may, it doesn't have to be a job. It doesn't have to be an occupation. There's a mission you've been given. So what does it look like to show integrity in the labor that you've been given? A while back, I happened to see a documentary on Charles Spurgeon. Are you familiar with Charles Spurgeon? One of my favorite, favorite examples in ministry. Somebody that I, I mean, he lived, you know, a century before me, but I got to tell you, I look up to him and I read his words and I, I don't know what his voice sounded like, but I feel like I hear it in my mind at times. And he happened to be, you know, he's a pastor, he loved Jesus, he was motivated to preach the gospel of Christ, he was motivated to serve people, he was motivated to evangelize the lost. I was watching a documentary about him really just a few months ago, and as I watched the film, one of the things I was amazed by was his level of productivity. I was amazed by it. And I started taking notes afterward, because I thought, while this is fresh in my mind, I want to write this stuff down for my own sake, but I also want to be able to share it with others. And I jotted down six things that stood out to me from that documentary of his life. Six things that I think are useful when we're trying to be productive for the Lord's glory. And by the way, he was, like I said, he was a well-known pastor in the, in the 1800s, in the second half of the 1800s, but he pastored a church that grew very large under his leadership while writing approximately 150 books. Some people are like, yeah, sometime in my life I should write one. Well, he wrote 150. Kind of a lot, right? Oh, and at the same time he was doing that, he also published a magazine. Oh, and while he was doing that, he also founded an orphanage for orphaned children in the community. And then he thought, you know what, I also might as well, while I'm at it, establish a pastor's college to train new pastors. So he established a pastor's college. And he started many other Christ-centered ministries. And here's the thing. This is like 130 years later, 150 years later. And many of those things are still operating. So they were founded well and outlasted him by a century and a half already. And so I looked at that. I was like, all right, that is, obviously you can see the hand of God upon his life. That's not something you do in your own strength. But I thought to myself, all right, what can I learn from this man as far as productivity? Here are six things that I gathered from, from Spurgeon. I'm actually going to put it up on the screen here. And it's worth, it's worth noting some of these, maybe even worth noting all of them. But here's a few things. First of all, Spurgeon was able to be productive because he understood what needed to get done. He looked at what, what mattered, what needed to get done, and he, and, and he would avoid over-focusing on things that really didn't need to get done, or at least didn't need to get done by him. So he focused on what needed to get done, or maybe I could even say what he needed to get done, the big picture and the small picture. Then he made a point to create a schedule and keep it. He kept the schedule. He created a schedule and kept it, meaning if you called him and said, uh, Pastor Spurgeon, what will you be doing two Tuesdays from now at 3 p.m.? He could tell you. He'd be like, Tuesdays at 3 p.m., this is what I do. And he, would, he kept the schedule. He kept it. Third thing he did was he eliminated sloth and time wasters from his schedule. So he noticed areas that tended to waste his time and areas where he was tempted to drift towards sloth. And so he said, all right, I, gotta ha I have to eliminate those from my schedule. Otherwise, the things that I've committed to be part of or to lead won't get led or won't get founded or won't get established. So he eliminated sloth and time wasters from his schedule. And then number four, and I think this is key, no matter what sphere of life you're operating in, this is so key. He surrounded himself with a team 
that helped him get things accomplished. I also, I look at that in the context of our local church. Many of you know we have elders, we have ministry directors that oversee various departments. And sometimes people compliment the church, and I'll receive compliments from even other churches that are looking at our church as an example of different things. And I'll think to myself, pretty much anything good that takes place in our church, our elders and ministry directors, like I, I, I look at this, I'm like, these are people that are committed, like they're facilitating these things in such a way, and I, I think they, they make the whole thing look good. And what we've done is just surrounded ourselves with these people that have now built teams that are surrounding them. And it's like this team approach that goes several layers deep. And when you surround yourself with a team and you don't try and do everything by yourself, things actually get accomplished. Two people can pull more than what you know, one person's trying to do by himself when another person's trying to do something by themselves. You combine their energy, get that synergy there, and all of a sudden it, it, it compounds the effect. So Spurgeon would surround himself with people who would help him get things accomplished. He wrote a whole bunch of books, but he didn't edit those books. He hired a team of secretaries who would edit these things. He would write, they would edit, and it would make him sound intelligent as he would then publish this material. Five and this was also very important, so he'd be refreshed to do these things, but he would schedule time for prayer and rest. And regularly, you know, so he's living in England, so there was a spot on the French coast that he would go to, and it had fresh air, and he would go, and he would spend some time on the French coast uh, from time to time, a couple times a year, and he would, he would just sit there for like a week or two and decompress, and he would pray, and he would get the tank full again, and then he'd come back to London and start all over. And then another thing, he and his wife were blessed with two sons, and he made it a point not to neglect his family. It's hard to imagine that in the midst of all the responsibilities he took on, that he was by the grace of God able to not neglect his family, but he did not neglect them. He stayed very devoted to his wife and very committed to raising his children, both of those boys, and, um, and they were grateful for him. But he was able to do that in part because he was surrounded by such a great team. And so they work together. And so I throw that out there because it inspires me. But if we're trying to be productive, we don't have to come up with how it looks. It's already been done. It's already been displayed for us. Jesus Christ gave us the ultimate display. Paul tried to copy the example of Christ. Spurgeon tried to copy the example of Christ. And Paul, we're in the same spot. We can copy the example of those who have come before us and Christ who lives within us. Something else this scripture brings out, though, is Paul's trying to address this, because sometimes when you think about getting all this stuff done, you start to feel like, all right, am I just going to be exhausted? And he says this in verse 13 down to verse 15, he encourages us, don't grow weary in doing good. He says it this way, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. But then he gives this caveat. Notice it. He says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So Paul states something in these verses that I think is immensely helpful for believers to understand when you devote yourself to faithfully serving the Lord. Please hear me on this if you're somebody that's purposed in your heart that you're going to do something like that. If you devote yourself to faithfully serving the Lord, there's counsel here you need to hear. As the Holy, as the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to pen these words down, Paul encouraged the church, don't grow weary in doing good. Have you ever experienced weariness in serving God's people? 
even just a taste of it? If you've ever been serving as an active volunteer in a local church, sometimes you feel a little beaten down, you get a little tired after a while. Uh, if you've ever served in vocational ministry, same thing. You can find yourself just getting a little tired after a while. And I have no doubt that at times, if that's been your story, that there have been seasons or points when you've experienced weariness. It comes to us all. I'd be lying if I said I didn't sometimes experience that. And it could be particularly wearisome when you're not only trying to do what the Lord's called you to do, but when you feel like you are carrying the weight for others who aren't shouldering the load. So it could be exhausting when you have to repeatedly admonish or warn believers who seem to value their own comfort more so than anything else in this world. And you have Paul saying, look, guys, he's talking to the church at Thessalonica, and he's saying, I understand how this feels. I understand what this is like. Earlier this week, two pastors that I've been friends with for decades, since my childhood, they both passed away. Two of them. And uh, in fact, uh, one of them will be uh, driving up to go to their viewing uh, this evening. And the interesting thing is they were both friends with each other, too, and they passed away within 24 hours of each other. It's kind of fascinating when you think about your life and you think about that. Who would think that within such a short span of time, two friends would pass away? But their ministries began before I was even born. And in the decades that I've had the privilege to observe both of these men, I've watched them both persist in their work. They refused to give up, even when they went through prolonged seasons of burden and discouragement, and I saw that happen to both of them. And they lasted so long in ministry, because in their moments of weariness, they allowed Jesus to lift them up. They allowed Jesus to see them through those seasons. And I am certain, and this is a fascinating thought for my mind to consider, and I want us all to consider this, but I'm certain that now that they're face to face with Christ, as they look back on all of that, you know what I'm certain they said, or that they're saying? It's all worth it. It was all worth it. Their race has been won and run, and now they're, they're in the presence of Christ, and they're looking back at that and saying, it was all worth it. All of it was worth it. And that's the type of thing that I think is helpful for us to keep in mind when we look at a portion of Scripture like this. It's encouraging us to be doers, not just talkers, but doers. And Paul's trying to motivate the church to follow Christ's example in that specific area. But please know that if you take his words seriously here, there will be moments when it's likely that you may go through stretches of weariness or just tired feelings or discouragement or whatever it may be. It's kind of impossible to go through life in this world serving other people in any sphere and not sometimes feeling those feelings. And so Paul was trying to encourage them, listen, don't grow weary in doing good. Keep it up as the Lord empowers you to do it. It will all be worth it. There will be a day you'll stand before the Lord face to face, and you'll think back on how you used the time He gave you here on this earth, and anything you did for His glory, you're going to look back and you're going to say, it was worth it. And one last thing Paul says as he finishes up this letter, 
And this is where we'll end today as we finish up our study of 2 Thessalonians. But he just encourages these brothers and sisters to walk in the grace and peace of Christ. He says this in verses 16 down to 18. He says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times. In every way, the Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So again, as Paul ends this letter to the church at Thessalonica, he does so by encouraging them to walk in the grace and in the peace of Christ. And keep in mind, the peace that Christ supplies is not just merely the absence of conflict. It's a steady confidence in Christ in the midst of seasons of heaviness and trial. And the grace of Christ is His unmerited favor that He bestows upon His family in more ways than we could easily count. So let's ask ourselves a a few kind of like wrap-up questions just to think about and wrestle with in our own hearts. Are you walking day to day as one who has been immensely blessed by His favor, by His grace? Do you live as someone who is continually comforted by His peace? This is the benediction that Paul is giving this church, that they would experience these things. The Lord's calling on our lives is more significant than any voice we will ever hear other than His own. So our couches might be calling us, you know, and encouraging us, oh, just fold your hands, just rest a little bit longer, just rest a little bit longer. But Christ calls us to press on and not give in to weariness while He empowers us to do good. So there'll be plenty of time at some point for us to slumber when we need it. But for now, let's remain active. Let's remain productive while we wait for Christ to return. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and just for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this portion of Scripture together today and to think about the things that you reveal to us in it. Lord, it's fascinating to just think about the ways in which you want us to live our lives. We know, Lord, that in many respects, we find ourselves in a spot where sometimes, and I just have to admit this to you, sometimes all I want to do is just take a prolonged nap. And Lord, sometimes that's needed. I mean, you, you, you love us when we rest. You love us when we work. It's not like we have to work to earn your favor. And you tell us in your word that rest is healthy and rest is good. And then sometimes we say, wow, that rest was so good. I'm going to take it and I'm going to turn it into sloth. And that's not your calling on our lives. And unfortunately, Lord, as we look at some of the church at Thessalonica, what they were doing, some of them had just become so slothful. They were so happy to be served and so unwilling to serve. So, Lord, we pray that if in any way, whether it be small or big ways, if we've ever approached life from that same perspective, that you'd help us to course correct as you empower us to do so. Thank you for the example that you set for us, and then the example that you inspired the Apostle Paul to set for Thessalonica, and the example that you in very powerful ways, work through guys like Charles Spurgeon and probably many other people in our lives that we could think about that have influenced us and given us a work ethic that sticks in our mind and sticks in our heart. But Lord, we pray that everything we do would be empowered by you and for your glory. Help us not to be falsely convinced like many in this world are convinced that you only love us if we do this or do that. That's not how this works. But because you've empowered us, 
And because you've given us opportunity, and because you've given us abilities, and because you've given us time, there are ways that you've called us to serve you and to glorify your name. So we pray that we would take that seriously. Lord, if our hearts have been hard to this concept, we pray that you would soften our hearts and that we would find joy in glorifying you through whatever task you place before us, whether it seems glorious or menial. We pray, Lord, that it would be joyful as we do it. Lord, I'm even, even as I'm praying to you right now, I'm reminded of what my pastor asked me when I told him I wanted to be a pastor. Lord, you know and I know his question to me was, whose job is it to clean up throw up if someone throws up in the church? And Lord, I'm grateful that he asked me that question. Because it's not somebody else's job, it's our job. We serve one another for your glory. And so, Lord, thank you for the reminders and the examples you place before us. Help us to be productive for you, knowing that we're here just for a, just a vapor of time, just a mist. Our lives are just like a mist. And then we come before you, and we know that there's going to be a day when you welcome us into your presence, you're going to tell us, well done. And we're going to look back over our brief journey here on this earth, and we're going to say, Every single thing that we did for your glory, every single thing that we trusted your power to empower us to accomplish, we're going to look back at it all and we're going to say it was all worth it. We're going to be glad that we listened to your counsel. We're going to be glad that we listened to your voice. And we pray that that would motivate us daily. So again, Lord, we thank you for this reminder from your word today. We pray that as you empower us to do so, that we would live this all out and that your name would be honored in the process. We give you the glory now. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.